0: This podcast episode, while not explicit, does contain descriptions of sexual assault, suicidal ideation, and murder that some listeners may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised.
1: Creepy Life podcast. Podcast with a wide variety of topics for all your true crime, paranormal and otherwise spooky needs. I'm Thomas. I'm Sparky. Well, it's a new year.
0: Yes, it is. I totally forgot last time we recorded that the next one would be 2021.
1: So, Yeah, we totally should have been that typical dad and said, "Well, see you next year."
0: <laughs> well, happy 2021 everyone. So, we got some exciting stuff going on this week. What's that? Oh, well, you know, you're finally covering.
1: I'm finally doing a story for the first time in a month.
0: Well, that too, but you're also finally covering your uh, hometown story.
1: Yeah. And some of my friends know this story already. Or at least know what story it is, whether they actually know details or not. Mm-hmm. I have been researching this story off and on for about six months.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it hurts. And I think part of the reason. Like, when you did your story, it was really sad to hear, but it was also, like, so far away, it's kind of disassociated, I guess, a little bit. The people involved are dead. You didn't really know them. I obviously didn't know them because I'm not from that area. Right. But with this story, some of the people involved are still alive. Some of them are still around, and I've known some of them and had no idea they were involved in this case. Yeah. Yeah. Should I tell what the case is?
0: Yeah, that would probably be good.
1: Okay, we are covering, or I should say, I'm covering, this is the murder of Brandon Tina. Dun-dun-dun. This was a case that inspired the film Boys Don't Cry with Hilary Swink,
0: Which we watched the other day, and it was very depressing.
1: And very Hollywood.
0: Yeah. Well, let's start talking about your sources and what makes your opinion on this story special
1: okay well i have a lot of sources okay oh i
0: made a website it's called it's uh, podpage dot com slash creepy life so we're going to be posting all of our sources there instead of in our show notes from now on so check there if you want to look at any of these specifically but thomas is just going to do a quick rundown of them Yeah.
1: yeah so my big source that really created a decent narrative is going to be The New Yorker. And the reason that I liked this article so much was it was written in, like, 1996, I think, 97. It was written around the time that the the cases were still going on, verdicts were being dropped. It was fresh. It wasn't a reporter digging up stuff now. Mm -hmm. And they had a narrative. The person that wrote the article was in contact with some of the killers who are in prison. That's my main source. There's several, um, I saw a 2020 uh, excerpt on YouTube, which I have the link for. The documentary. Did you uh, actually watch it? Yes.
0: When did you watch it? This morning, while you were asleep. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I slept till, like, 10 today.
1: Oops. Yes, you did. Uh, The Brandon Tina story, which is an hour long, and it's on Amazon Prime. Mm -hmm. It is also on YouTube. For free. So...
0: Cool. Anything else?
1: My other sources are typically, like, YouTube videos, a Wikipedia page on, like, Lana Tisdall and Brandon Tina. Oddly enough, the perpetrators in this,
0: they don't have their own
1: Wikipedia page.
0: Good. They don't deserve it.
1: But it was really hard to try and dig up their past. You got little bitty glimpses of it in different articles. But a Wikipedia article would have been nice.
0: But... Fortunately, you have an inside source. you Oh, nugget.
1: that's right. I do have a source.
0: Who's your source?
1: Her name is Angela, and she happens to be the sister of one of the perpetrators. Mm-hmm. And she was able to, if there was anything I wasn't sure of, because things were a little fuzzy when it came to the, the history of them, she was able to either clear it up or say, no, that's not what happened. This is what happened.
0: And... We didn't, like, interview her on tape, but anytime Thomas had any kind of a question, he would talk to her on Facebook because...
1: She is actually good friends with my mom. Yeah. (laughs) So. Yeah. And I was, honestly, I was scared to approach her about this. Mm -hmm. Because, well, her brother's on death row for a brutal murder. Is she going to want to talk about this, or is she going to be like some of the other people involved in this case that refuse to talk to anyone?
0: Yeah, and I wouldn't blame her if she was. Yeah,
1: if she didn't want to talk about it, I would have been, yeah, okay, cool. And just relied on Google. Yeah, but, but
0: she was totally open. Mm-hmm. She answered pretty much every question you asked her. Mm-hmm.
1: And and they, they were never about, like, I was never going and asking her to tell me the whole story. It was just kind of, I read these people only knew each other a month before this happened. Is that true? Yeah.
0: Or, or can you, you, you tell me more about this thing that they mentioned. Yeah. Yeah, so we want to thank her.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: And I think that'll give a more personal touch to this story, I think. And also, Thomas just knows a lot of the people involved personally because he lived in this town for a while, so.
1: Yeah. Now, some of the people might not exactly know me if you were to approach them and say, hey, do you know this guy? And the reason is I spent most of my time working in restaurants. Mm. And if you're a server or a cook, you might as well be invisible, honestly.
0: Mm-hmm. Unless
1: you like went to high school with them or something and know them that way. A lot of these people were regulars at a restaurant I work, and I would talk to them there. If they actually knew my name, I don't know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know who they are.
1: I know who they are, yes. Cool. If you've ever worked in customer service in any way, you know what I'm talking about with that. Yeah. 2020 has cool. proven we're invisible.
0: It's also proven that you're good uh, punching bags.
1: Yes, we are. (laughs) Okay. But yeah, just to, to clarify, I was a very, very quiet person. I didn't really socially interact with people outside of work. Most of the people that I know, it's either I know who they are because they were pointed out to me as being involved, or they were just regulars at the restaurant and, you know, just kind of a, hey, how you doing? Whatever, when they would come in. Yeah. It wasn't like I was going and getting drinks with them but this this crime happened in nineteen ninety three I was born in nineteen ninety three
0: okay, I think we need to make a drinking game
1: where every
0: time you mention that you were born in nineteen ninety three they have to take a shot.
1: <laughs> so this crime happened nine months after I was born, so no, I wasn't like socializing and drinking and hanging out with these people.
0: You might have been some babies got rough lives.
1: <laughs> speaking of rough lives this the subject of this story had a very rough life, yes,
0: and also before we start um and I know a decent amount about this case because Thomas has talked about it forever, and we watched Boys Don't Cry Together, and when we watched it, I asked, like, "Is this what this actually happened? And he would kind of explain, but we want to say right up front, this crime deals with sexual assault, and also um, misgendering of a trans person, and of course murder, because we said that up front. So if any of that stuff is touchy for you, if you don't want to listen, that's okay. We will mention before things happen, like before the really gruesome parts that they're coming up, so if you want to just keep listening and skip those parts, that would be fine. Obviously, we can't tell you what to do, but just wanted to warn you up front.
1: Yeah, because this case is not for the faint of heart, honestly. I kind of went into a very dark place researching this. I know details of this I didn't ever really want to know, but I know.
0: Yeah, right.
1: Okay, so... Brandon Tina was born Tina Renee Brandon on December 12, 1972, in Lincoln, Nebraska. I've been there. Really? Many times. I've been
0: there, too. You took me there, remember? I know. Yeah. Oh, we ate at
1: Freddy's. We ate at Freddy's in Lincoln, yeah. So Brandon was one of two kids. He was the, the second born to Patrick, went by Pat Brandon, and Joanne Brandon. Now, Brandon's older sister, Tammy, was born two years earlier when Joanne was only 14 years old. Oof. Yep. Brandon's father worked what they referred to as hard hat jobs, you know, like construction. So, Uh,
0: Brandon was born when his mom was 16?
1: Yeah, about, I figured about 17, and I will explain.
0: That's really young regardless, especially to have two kids. Absolutely. No judgment,
1: it just would be really hard. Uh, He worked, you know, kind of like day labor jobs, and they lived in a mobile home park off Cornhusker Highway in Northeast Lincoln, which I've driven by a million times growing up. A couple years after Tammy was born, Joanne was just one month pregnant with Brandon when Pat was killed in a car accident. Dad? He was only 19. Oh, jeez. Years later, Brandon was actually given counseling, and he stated that his father had been drunk, and his convertible rolled over and went off a bridge. Thanks. So, so Joanne Brandon was a widow. She was, you know, didn't finish high school. She was only seventeen when she was widowed. So, having two kids, being widowed by this young age, she had hoped to become a model. She had actually modeled children's clothes in department store catalogs when she was younger. Oh, cool. So she moved back to her mother's house, where. She began the the very fun journey of raising two kids by yourself. Oof. Yeah. So she was a single parent. She relied on social security checks that began to arrive because of Pat's death. But shortly before Brandon's second birthday, Joanne remarried. She was only 19 at the time of the marriage, and it lasted only for five years. She was Catholic, and so sent her kids to Catholic schools. Brandon was described as being a tomboy. Brandon's mom and Tammy... Told interviewers, after it all went down, that Brandon had liked to play with a garter snake instead of dolls. That he had liked to play with cars and take radios apart. And even fantasized about being the quarterback on the football team.
0: Nice. So, the main person you're talking about today...
1: Brandon was born Tina Renee Brandon.
0: Yes. But he identified as male.
1: We're getting to that
0: part. Well, I just want to say that at the beginning... So if you are confused about anything that we're saying, we want to identify Brandon the way that he wanted to be identified. So we will be referring to him as him, or he.
1: There's even an account that I found that stated that Brandon, as well as Tammy, had been sexually molested by a male relative. Some even say that it was an uncle. So as they got a little older, and by a little older I mean they're still teenagers, they started... Roaming with what was described in this article as the underside of Lincoln, bouncing wherever friends would let him crash. Brandon moved in with Tracy, and then his sister Tammy, who had been involved in an abusive relationship. And Tammy started believing that Brandon had been stealing money from her. Now, Aphrodite Jones, who was an author of a book entitled All She Wanted About This Case, reports that there were arguments that forced Brandon to move out and back in with his mom. So Brandon moves back in with his mom, Joanne. And this is when he decides to. Any signs of being female, he's gonna start hiding. He starts binding his breasts with like an ace bandage. And he's basically officially, I'm a guy, I'm no longer a girl. Don't refer to me as that.
0: Yeah, and I don't have much experience with binding. I did during Newsies, and it was miserable. So, mad respect to people that do that every day. Yeah, it does
1: not seem very comfortable. No. This was around the time the desert storm was kind of kicking in,
0: mm.
1: and Brandon tried to enlist in the Air Force, but was rejected because he failed the written test.
0: he finished school? No. didn't finish school?
1: No, he dropped out. Tammy ends up pregnant, gives up the child, which was a little girl that was half African American, who was then adopted by a lesbian couple from San Francisco. Brandon was saddened by this. He had actually told people that he liked the idea of being an aunt. But I'm assuming aunt, uncle, it was just kind of depending who he was talking to. Because if it was his mom, to this day, denies her daughter, she is what Brandon's mom always refers to Brandon as. It's it's she, it's my daughter. So if he had specified to her, oh, I want to be an uncle, she would have switched that to aunt.
0: Yeah, and I noticed in a lot of the articles you were looking at... They would, what they called, dead name and use wrong pronouns constantly because it was the 90s and no respect for people. Yay.
1: Yep. Let's just say, Brandon liked the idea of having a niece. Then his best friend Sarah got pregnant and Brandon even suggested that he would like to help raise the kid and maybe even adopt it. Hmm. Illegitimacy was something that a lot of people in this area viewed as kind of a black inner city problem. This wasn't something that was going to affect white people in the 90s.
0: Well, of course not.
1: But a statistic I found said that 22% of white children born in 1991 were illegitimate. And more than 80% of the single mothers only had high school or less education. I guess that illusion was wrong. I couldn't really find what happened, but Brandon ended up leaving Sarah's place where he'd been staying. And was once again forced to live with his mom. Brandon was now 18 didn't graduate high school, and that's when things started changing. A 13-year-old named Liz dialed the wrong number. Liz liked the the voice on the other end, and they began to flirt. The voice identified his name as Billy Brinson. Liz suggested that she and Billy get together, and Billy was cool with it. So on New Year's Eve, Liz and Billy went on a roller skating date. Billy Brinson was the first male name that Brandon Tina went by.
0: Mm -hmm. You'll see
1: as Tina Renee Brandon starts identifying as a male, starts using different aliases, until finally just flips his name.
0: To Brandon Tina. Tina
1: Brandon becomes Brandon Tina. So the little fling with Liz didn't last long and was quickly followed by Heather, who was 14. And at this point, Billy Brinson became Billy Brandon. Brandon was described as being a good kisser, an expert cuddler, and at this time, began stuffing socks into his shorts to give his groin the appearance of having something there, which is a pretty common, common thing.
0: Yeah.
1: Started with socks, but was later, like shown in the movie, a dildo. Mm-hmm.
0: I can't imagine that's comfortable, to walk around with a dildo in your pants. I
1: can't really imagine walking around with a pair of socks in your pants is comfortable, <laughs> let's, let's be honest.
0: No, but I mean, that's not... Like, depending on the material.
1: Okay, so, Billy Brandon moved out of Joanne Brandon's mobile home and in with Heather and her mom, Ruth. Now, the issue did come up. His story was that he was intersex, or that he was a man trapped in a woman's body. He always seemed to have an explanation. So, basically, he was describing himself as someone who was born with both sexual organs. Now, typically when that happens... Either one is more developed than another and that makes the decision or parents kind of make the call. And then with surgery, for instance, if a baby is born female, but has like an underdeveloped male sex organ with surgery, they would remove the male sex organs or vice versa. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't always happen. There are stories where people actually grow up, develop and enter puberty with both.
0: Mm hmm. Yeah, and thankfully, nowadays, it's a lot more, the I in LGBTQIA is intersex. It's a lot more, more not common necessarily, but it's more, there's more representation of it, so mm -hmm. people are more aware of it. Yeah, more aware, and people feel more comfortable identifying as such, because you shouldn't have to be ashamed of your body or who you are.
1: Yeah, that was a, a common story, or he would say that he was a man trapped inside a woman's body. His mom, Joanne Brandon, states that he picked up that excuse from watching the Montel Williams show. But Billy told Heather that he had undergone surgery. But over the years, that story kind of refined from, oh, yeah, I'm post-op to, yeah, I'm just kind of starting that path. And he was very smooth about avoiding exposing. When it came to being intimate, he was described as being the toucher, never the touched.
0: Yeah, like, he would have been a lot happier if he'd been born nowadays, you know?
1: hmm Now, his girlfriend at the time, Heather, didn't really express any doubts. She just kind of took him at his word. And he actually proposed to her. And she says yes. And they decided that they were going to actually honeymoon on a cruise.
0: COVID has uh, ruined me for cruises. I just immediately thought, that's not safe!
1: Now... Like I said earlier, Joanne Brandon was not thrilled with what she saw as her baby girl masquerading as a guy.
0: Mm -hmm. And if you watch Boys Don't Cry, you can see there's a lot of people that feel that
1: way. Absolutely. Which sucks. Now, she called Heather and her mom Ruth's house and left messages on the answering machine saying that Heather and Billy were lesbians. And her tone was so threatening that police actually cited her for disturbing the peace. No one really believed Joanne about it and thought that uh, unapproving, you know, she was a good Catholic girl here. Her son is, you know, living with a girl unmarried, throwing a fit, trying to do everything they can to break it up. Mm -hmm. That and the fact that Brandon was very, very, very sure and would always undeniably tell his mom that he was not a lesbian. And like I said, his mom couldn't accept that. And that caused... A lot of strain on their relationship.
0: Yeah, I can imagine.
1: So, Billy finally went from Billy and Brandon to Brandon and Tina. And had a reputation of being a lady killer. Didn't stay with girls very long. Uh, Heather was followed by Brianna, and then Danielle, and Lindsay, Gina, Daphne, and a lot of others that have never even been recorded.
0: What happened to Heather? Did um, they just break up? hmm Oh.
1: Now, my thought about this was he knew that he was never going to be accepted. I mean, the majority of people, I mean, homophobia was such a huge thing. Really, it still is, but such a huge thing that people were violently attacked for this. So maybe not the person he's dating, maybe not their family, but if someone else finds out, then that could be trouble. I mean, the movie actually shows, I I believe it was fictional because I couldn't find any stories of it. But Brandon running from a mob of guys who found out he was biologically female. They wanted to beat the crap out of him or worse. So I think that anytime time things got a little too much, maybe they found out a little more than he was comfortable with letting them know, he'd run.
0: And that's understandable.
1: So Brandon got a fake ID that he used to get jobs. He, he'd work as a temp, pizza delivery, you know, whatever kind of minimum wage job. They didn't ask too many questions. Yeah. His idea of dating was very, very old-fashioned. I'm guessing it was probably came from watching movies. It was shower the girls with gifts. hmm Candy, flowers, pizzas, even promise rings and marriage proposals.
0: Wow. Well,
1: mm-hmm. Now, you're probably wondering, how does someone going from minimum wage to minimum wage job pay for stuff like this?
0: My guess is they don't.
1: Pretty much. <laughs> Brandon had the habit of stealing. A lot of times it was ATM cards from people he knew (laughs) or forging checks. Oh boy. Now, as a rule, typically only stole from friends or parents of friends. Crazily enough, some of the people defended him, even though he'd been stealing from them.
0: Maybe because he needed it more?
1: All the stuff that he charged that he forged checks for, it was all for his girlfriends.
0: Oh.
1: It wasn't like he was stealing from a moment, you know, buying himself stuff. But things started catching up with him. The Lincoln Police Department already started a rap sheet on him. The first listing was an arrest on March 13th, 1991 for possession of stolen property. He was found guilty, fined $500, and served three days in jail. Wasn't the first time he was arrested, but most of the time, cases were dismissed, whatever charges were made were dropped... Or the county attorney declined to prosecute. Wasn't enough evidence, not enough proof, you know, whatever. So in October of 91, Brandon was arrested on a forgery charge. But unlike the other times, he couldn't really talk his way out of this one. Before he he came to trial, according to Aphrodite Jones, author of the book we talked about, he got into a big fight with Heather over his true identity. Was he a man or was he a woman? Was he really Brandon or was he really Tina? This led him to swallowing a bottle of pills, and he was rushed mm-hmm. to the hospital. About a week after that, he was admitted to the Lannister County Crisis Center in Lincoln, where he was put on suicide watch. He was hospitalized for about a week. He was then discharged, where therapists therapist had diagnosed him as being transsexual with a personality disorder.
0: That was the official diagnosis?
1: Yep. Then in March of 92, in a Lancaster County District courtroom... He was convicted of second-degree forgery and was sentenced to 18 months probation under terms that he would agree to undergo psychological counseling, not drink alcohol. He had to get his GED, and he had to make restitution for the amount of $186.49 to Food Bonanza, which <laughs> is one of the places that he had forged a check at.
0: And some name, Food Bonanza.
1: So a psychological counselor, I guess would be the term, Noted that attendance was sporadic and infrequent. Now stated, this is a quote. They addressed Brandon as Tina. Just wanted to specify that that is in this quote, and I'm not misgendering. It says, Tina does what is needed to get by. No changes noted in taking responsibility, personal growth, or attitude. Two months later, Brandon was terminated from the program, and the final statement the therapist made was she told Many different versions of things. It's hard to know what to believe. Further therapy is unlikely to be of help. And that kind of hurts because a therapist, an understanding therapist, is what Brandon absolutely needed. He needed someone that he could talk to to help understand what he was going through. And instead, they're just, it's not going to do him any good.
0: Yeah. Like I said, again, I think if he had grown up now, even like 10, 20 years later, things would be a lot easier for him.
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: Because there's so many more programs now, and people know so much more, that probably wouldn't have just been dismissed as a lost cause.
1: Mm Mm-mm. No. It's really sad that people in the past have been treated differently just because someone didn't understand, or didn't approve, or didn't like. It's We're all human beings. Treat everyone like human beings.
0: Yeah, and that's true for today, too. Even if you don't understand someone, you don't have to understand them to be nice to them.
1: So, outside of the criminal justice system, where Brandon was still being referred to as Tina, he was still a young man called Brandon. And he was bouncing around from girl to girl. These girls typically weren't certain about Brandon's masculinity. But a lot of these girls that he was dating, they came from broken, abusive homes. So part of the appeal was he's non threatening. Brandon was about five five, very slender. They didn't have to worry that when he was with them, they, they were his his angel, his yeah. queen. He would do whatever for them. So they didn't have to worry about being raped. They didn't have to worry about being beaten. You know, that that's really sad that there's people out there that are genuinely afraid of that every single day. So even the possibility of going to prison didn't really uh, stop Brandon from either forging more checks or stealing more ATM cards. By the fall of 93, he had violated so many of the conditions of his probation that a Lancaster County judge issued a statewide warrant for his arrest. His friend Gina discovered the presents that Brandon had been giving and were actually charged to her credit card.
0: <laughs> hey, about you this. With your money, how you feel about that?
1: <laughs> so, in early September, Brandon was arrested for forging a bank withdrawal slip for 135 dollars, another felony, while he's still on probation. So it really seemed like the world was closing in. Mm-hmm. So he realized that maybe he needed to move on. Maybe he didn't really want to face facts of all the stuff he's been doing. I'm probably going to prison. He just thought, you know, maybe it's time to move on where no one knows him. Now, that opportunity came in November. His girlfriend, Daphne, had a friend named Carrie Gross. So it just so happened that Carrie Gross was crashing at a farmhouse outside of Humboldt, which was an hour and a half south of Lincoln. And so Brandon used the alias Charles Brayman, who was a cousin, as a fallback alias. And Brandon headed for Richardson County, Nebraska. To stay at the farmhouse, along with Carrie and her boyfriend, Mike, as well as the lady that actually lives at the house, Lisa Lambert.
0: Dun, dun, dun. Now we're getting into real stuff here.
1: Now, I would like to point out, and this makes me really, really angry, but I gotta say it. She rented the house for $125 a month. Ugh. Yep. Oh, man. And it was a farmhouse.
0: Like the entire house?
1: It wasn't a huge house, but yeah. Yeah. you watch the movie, to kind of pay respect to Lisa Lambert's family, her character has been changed to Candace.
0: Yeah. I think that it was also to limit confusion between another L name in the story.
1: Probably, which we will get to. Mm -hmm. When Brandon arrived in Richardson County, it did not take him long to get around. He was a regular at the Oasis, which was a club... On Stone Street, if you're familiar with Fall City, Stone Street is the main business street. It's where most of the restaurants, most of the stores, the county fair is located there when they have it. This is something I, I would like to clear up. In the movie Boys Don't Cry, they show Fall City as kind of being this like tiny town with scarce businesses and like gravel roads in town yeah and that's not fall city at all fall city has like a a business district even though it's not got much it's there and it's several blocks the big hotel in town the courthouse one of the grocery stores that was there at the time a couple of the banks that's all like in one block so it's not like spread out like it's depicted in the movie in fact in the movie they go to a gas station that gas station is known as Quick Shop. And it is still a teen hangout. And it's, like, right in the center of town.
0: Not so on the outskirts like they showed?
1: No, do you remember when we went... Do you remember where Runza was? Vaguely. Okay, it's the gas station right across from Runza. Oh, okay. Yeah, center of town. And right behind Quick Shop now is the city library. There was a church across the street from that. I can't remember what denomination. Across the street from that was a Shopco <laughs>
0: that is It
1: is now... Uh, I just read an article in the Fall City Journal about what it was. I can't remember.
0: R.I.P. Shopco.
1: R.I.P. Shopco. But yeah, there's a few car lots, a big grocery store. They have a a decent school. They have four different schools, just in public, and then they have a Catholic school. The population at the time was close to five thousand. I do believe it's a little less than four thousand now. But it's not like this little podunk town. The way it described is pretty much if you were to drive to Rulo, which is 10 miles away, or like Verdon or Dawson. Those towns fit more what they were describing. Or even Humboldt, which is where a lot of this does take place. But in the film, it's supposed to be in Fall City.
0: But it is is—it is a small town. Like There's no it, doubt about
1: that. It is absolutely a small town. Yeah, a common thing to do is drive the Strip, which I think is only about a mile from end to end. (laughs) I might be wrong. It's been a long time, and I've lived in a couple small towns since then. The main drag is called Harlan. On that, you're going to have more restaurants. I think at least two churches. The big grocery store, which at the time of the crime was hinky-dinky and is now (laughs) sun-mart. Yeah, I know. When I watched the Brandon Tina story, documentary they're driving down harlan and i see it and i see the old sign and i was like five when it changed to sunmark, so i was like just getting flashes of being a kid and it's like <laughs> it was awesome i did get a little nostalgic when i saw some things i'm not gonna lie i don't ever want to live there again but what i did get flashbacks of being a kid hanging out with friends it's not a huge place but it's not like a microscopic blink and you miss it place either yeah so, yeah, Brandon was becoming a regular at the Oasis and the Quick Shop. A waitress at the Fall City Frosty Queen described him as being hot. <laughs> now, the the you're, Frosty
0: Queen? The Frosty Queen. There's nothing that that is ripping off.
1: Oh, absolutely not. Um, but, yeah, a waitress at Frosty Queen described him as being hot. And it didn't take him long to start, quote-unquote, being a lady killer again.
0: Woohoo!
1: Yeah. So the first one that really kind of fell for him was Lisa Lambert, who he was staying with.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Lisa had a child who, if I remember correctly, it was kind of a a brief encounter that led to her getting pregnant and he bounced. So she was raising this child alone. As far as I know, the child is still around there. He has obviously grown up. My cousin actually went to school with him. The baby's name is Tanner. He was a result of, I'm thinking it was like either a one night stand or they just dated very briefly and then she got pregnant and he left. Uh, but she was raising him by himself. By herself. By herself. <laughs> and that was kind of part of the reason why she let people stay with her a lot. It was kind of, you can stay here if you can if you can give me a hand. Yeah. You know, help me clean up a little bit. Help me, you know, watch him for a little bit so I can have like five seconds alone. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Now, according to the book by Aphrodite Jones, Lisa claimed that she had sex with Brandon, although she was drunk at the time. But there was also a puzzle at the uh, house. Kept finding tampon wrappers that were being discarded into the heating vents. And they were a different brand than any of the two women staying there. So that was something that kind of got Lisa a little suspicious, but she didn't really like, she didn't really think anything of it. It's kind of, oh, that's weird. So, Brandon continued his usual go from girl to girl. And he jumped from Lisa to a girl named Kelly. Now, Kelly I couldn't find much about. I think she might have worked at Frosty Queen, according to one article. But they didn't give a last name or anything. And then after Kelly, that's when... I haven't actually met this lady, but I've known of her. I know her family. I used to work with her niece. I always heard her name pronounced Lana. But in all the interviews I watched, her family referred to her as Lana.
0: So if her family calls her Lana, it's probably Lana.
1: Yeah, so I'm going to call her Lana. There were two sisters, Lana and her older sister, Leslie. I'm going to be much more forgiving than the article I read and just say they had a bit of a reputation. Now, some of their family was well off. Yeah, Their aunt, Virginia Tisdale. Uh, which was known as Jenny Tisdall, she actually pushed towards getting a war memorial for um, those from Richardson County that died in World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. Okay. And in the courthouse, they have a little museum, and they have like uniforms on display, medals, pictures. Cool. It's actually quite cool to look at. It. When Lana's father, Leland, married Linda Gutierrez, some of the Tisdalls, like Jenny, kind of felt that he married below him. So they just kind of, they always kept Linda at arm's length, and eventually their marriage didn't last, and the kids ended up bouncing back and forth between their dad and their mom. Linda was actually on disability, and basically supported herself through disability payments. But when they were around, they would live in cheap rental houses. By the fall of 93, their house was pretty much known as a crash pad for anyone wanting to lay low, or boyfriends to hook up, or... You know, just kind of like, hey, if you need a place to stay, come on, kind of place. Hmm. Okay, now we're going to put a little bit of focus on Leslie, which was Lana's older sister. So Leslie was described as being loud, overweight, and hard to handle. Oh, it's me. Now, she was left out of the movie. I noticed. The girl that I initially thought was supposed to be her, I figured the name was changed. The name was changed, but it was supposed to be one of John Lauder's sisters, not Angela, but... And they changed the name, and she was actually Lana's best friend. Oh, okay. So uh, she was in and out of juvie. She was drawn to a bunch of abusive relationships with men. At 16, she attempted suicide. And at 17, she gave birth to a half-black daughter named Jasmine. And her her life was, like, just kind of going crazy to the point that her mom actually made her give custody of her child to an older half-sister who didn't have any kids but was married. So it kind of gives some stability to the kid. In the fall of 93, Leslie was trying to get her life together and she applied for the Job Corps program and she was sent to the Job Corps in Denison, Iowa. Are you familiar with what the Job Corps
0: is? Isn't it kind of like they find you a job somewhere and they send you there?
1: Uh, Kind of, you go, you can be, they train you, and then, yeah. The center was kind of described as being almost a boot camp. You'd wake up at 6.15, they had to be in their rooms by 10, no profanity, they were monitored under behavior management. Stress was on discipline, there was a zero tolerance of drugs, alcohol, anyone caught violating, was immediately expelled. Not the type of place I'd want to be.
0: Yeah, probably not.
1: Basically, the termination rate of this place is one in three. One in three kids are not gonna make it through the program.
0: That's not great.
1: Nope. But it was it was here that Leslie met Philip Devine. Philip Devine is another person who was left out of the movie, and it makes me really, really angry because it was really important that he was in it, and there was actually speculations that he was left out because he was African American.
0: What people never leave out African Americans intentionally. Dripping with sarcasm.
1: Now, Philip DeVine's life was not all roses either. Um, I feel like
0: that's kind of the case for literally everyone involved in this story.
1: Pretty much. So when his mom was pregnant with him, she took a defective drug. Oh. And he was born two months premature. He had a damaged heart, crossed eyes, his lungs were permanently scarred, and his right leg ended at the knee, forcing him to wear a prosthetic. As soon as he could walk, he was having to use a prosthetic. But he was described as being incredibly agile, which enabled him to actually compete in sports. So, there's a silver lining. He had a disability, but it didn't stop him. Now, when he was a child, his parents divorced. He spent most of his time with his dad, first in California and then in Maryland. Now, when he was a kid, his mother became an acolyte for the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi.
0: Cool.
1: So, yeah, his mom got with an interesting crowd.
0: Sounds like it.
1: It was actually through that that he ended up in Iowa, and that's how he ended up being there at the Job Corps. You know, he applied for it. That was the local one, because before he had been in California.
0: Okay.
1: So, he was active in the Center's Business Professionals of America chapter. He was selected to attend a Job Corps conference in Washington, where he met Iowa's two senators and was presented, presented as one of the program's model citizens. But... It's actually a coincidence that he was there when Leslie arrived because in '93, he actually broke his leg playing football and had to withdraw from the job corps while it healed. If he hadn't, he would have actually been transferred to a job corps center in Colorado.
0: Hmm.
1: So Leslie didn't really like it there, but her and Philip just immediately connected. Leslie had hoped to regain custody of her daughter. And Philip was actually willing to act as her the kid's father, so Leslie finally was sick of job corps. She withdrew, but she invited Philip to spend Christmas in Fall City.
0: <laughs> Poor sap <laughs>
1: You've been to Fall city once.
0: Now, good Chinese food.
1: Oh, they have the best Chinese food okay, so now Leslie's sister, Lana, was nineteen years old in ninety three So Lana had not graduated high school. She didn't have a job. Pretty much passed her time driving around Fall City and going to the Oasis and singing karaoke. So early in December of 1993, Brandon met Lana. And I guess she was so impactful that he kind of forgot both Lisa and Kelly. Just like starstruck. Hmm. The next day, Brandon took Lana to Hardee's. And then that night, he took her to see the Adams Family Values at the local theater. (laughs) Love it. Fun fact, that local theater is where I first saw Star Wars.
0: Oh, my God. No, nope. It's legendary.
1: It's no longer a theater. It's an antique store.
0: Rude.
1: Yep, I thought so. On December 12th, Brandon was supposed to show up at Lisa's house because she was throwing a 21st birthday party for him. He didn't show up. And that pretty much ended whatever relationship they had together. She just kind of severed it, you know, done with him. So, Brandon then moved from... Lisa's house in Humboldt, to staying with Lana's mom. And the article even said, in Lana's bed.
0: And this is in Fall City? Mm
1: Mm-hmm. Philip Devine also showed up to spend holidays in Fall City, was at Linda's house, Lana's mom. But being close to him all the time without, like, a strict structure, it found out that Leslie didn't really want to be with him. And she began complaining that he was too possessive. So, regulars at this house were Leslie and Lana, and their mom, obviously, Brandon, Philip, and the article described them as small-town ex-convicts, John Lauder and Marvin Thomas Neeson, who went by Tom. Dun, dun, dun. Now, Neeson and Lauder, they really seemed to get along with Brandon. They would would roughhouse, they would swap stories, there's a picture of... John and Brandon sitting on a couch and John has his arm around him. You know, they were they were yeah. buds. They were drinking Bud's, you know. They would talk about the slickest ways to get laid. They would play cards with Philip, both Tom and John Lauder. They would call Lana's mom mom. And they would even use her house to hook up with their girlfriends. John was with a girl named Rhonda and Tom would hook up with a girl named Missy. Now Missy was actually Lana's mom's Teenage half sister, and at this time, while he was with her, Neeson was actually married to a woman named Candy, who was also described as not being faithful either.
0: Hmm, great, maybe they were poly. They had an open relationship.
1: Maybe, but Rhonda, who was with Lauder, was actually the mom of Lauder's infant daughter, Rochelle. I mean, it's a small town. Everyone pretty much knows everyone. Everyone pretty much knows what's going on. Do you remember Carrie Gross, the one that initially introduced Brandon to this community?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Brandon was arrested December 15th for forging checks on Carrie Gross's bank account. Uh. And he was identified in the Richardson County Jail as Tina Brandon. Now, up until this point, literally no one in Richardson County knows, or at least will admit, that Brandon is a signed yeah. female. I kind of have a few doubts considering how many women reported that he's been sleeping with, that at least some of them didn't have any suspicion. But up until this point, no one really knows. So he was
0: going by Brandon, Tina at this point? Yes. So it wouldn't have been hard to think, oh, Brandon, Tina, Tina, Brandon, it must be the same person.
1: And here is the interesting way of how he was arrested for this. It was either a routine traffic stop or some other stop. He was using the name Charles Brayman that I mentioned earlier, and he got a MIP, a minor in possession charge. And he was actually in court for that after he had paid the ticket or whatever. That's when a sheriff's deputy approached and said, I need to speak to you. And that is when he was arrested.
0: So similar to in the movie. Yep. Except in the movie, I think it was speeding.
1: Speeding ticket. Speeding on the dustless highway. So, Brandon's bond was $2,500, and he spent a week in lockup wearing a V-necked orange prisoner jumper. And when Lana visited, she couldn't help but notice when he leaned over that he had breasts. But still, one thing that... I, I asked Angie about this, and she told me that Lana was kind of naive. She was, you know, just a kid still. And so she probably would have taken taken his word, face value. If he had stated the, you know, I, I was born intersex, then she probably would have, okay, kind of thing. So on December 22nd, Lana was finally able to get the 10% to get Brandon out of jail. Now, Lana's dad, Leland, gave her a check, left it blank to go and get her hair done. He didn't really know how much it cost, so he just left it blank. And she wrote it for $250. She
0: She... got a whole service done.
1: (laughs) Now, she cast the check at a grocery store across the street, which here's the funny thing about that grocery store. I got some of my first photos there as a kid. (laughs) And then it closed down, and it became a Bredo's Pizza. And then it closed down, and it became a Constantino's Pizza, which I worked at. And then it closed down, and it became a Dickie's barbecue pit. Yay. Actually, their fried okra is amazing. Cool story. Now, Lana was too young to actually sign the bond agreement. It was signed by Tom Neeson. Mm. Now, keep this in mind. Neeson and John Lauder only knew each other about a month by this point. And he had never really known Lana before that. Now, John knew Lana... Mm-hmm. John's uh, sister was Lana's best friend. But, so, Tom has literally only known them about a month, and he's signing a bond agreement to get her boyfriend out of jail.
0: I don't like anybody that much, even people that I know.
1: Mm-mm. Once Brandon's out of jail, he starts acting as if nothing's happened. No one, no one saw anything. He wasn't in the women's lockup. It's fine. But he's been clearly identified as being assigned female. And so, Linda, Lana's mom, no longer, she's she's pissed. She doesn't want Brandon around Lana. She doesn't want Brandon around the house. She's mad. So, at this point, Brandon can't stay with Lana anymore. Can't stay with Lisa anymore. So, he starts just sleeping anywhere he can find, including Tom Neeson's house.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, reports said that this house wasn't exactly the most sanitary place in the world.
0: It's a dude's house. What do you expect?
1: And his wife and child. Oh. Of course, I saw some reports. I didn't really... I couldn't find too much on it. Some reports said that it was his kid. Some say that it, it was his step kid.
0: There was a child in the house, regardless. There was, there was a child
1: in the house, regardless, yeah. So, on Christmas Eve, they're having a Christmas party. The guests include the Tisdale sisters, Brandon, Philip. And a bunch of other local. The article described them as misfits. You know, just local teens. They're just getting together, they're partying, uh, they're drinking. And then they decide they are going to uh, show everyone else what they know about Brandon. Now, I watched an interview with John around the time of his. I'm guessing it was the time of his trial. He still had the. His hair was long. Now, this, the version of the story that John tells is that there were rumors that Brandon was actually a she and that was like a oh we, we gotta get to the bottom of this so I've I heard it was Lana that went to him I've heard that it was her mom that went to him and just said hey can you talk to Brandon and can you find out is Brandon a man or a woman so he approaches Brandon which
0: again you and I discussed this but I don't understand why it matters if you're not seeing them naked in your personal life anyway
1: well the two people that John claims asked, one of the two, was Lana, who was dating Brandon.
0: Well, why couldn't and, know Communication.
1: Or it was her mom. My well, mom's a butthead. Yeah. I couldn't exactly remember which one he said. I just know that one of them asked him. Um,
0: according to him. According to
1: him. And he has also maintained his innocence this entire time. <laughs> so he talks to Brandon, and Brandon says, oh yeah, let's go into the bathroom. So they go into the bathroom. He... Undoes his pants, but he turns the light off. And he's like, you know, I can't see anything. I can't prove anything. And he's like, okay, so let, let's go outside. It's still dark. I'm self-conscious, but it's enough. You'll, you'll see if something's there or not. Mm-hmm. John claims that what he tried to pass off as a penis was actually a belt. And he didn't really care. According to him, he didn't care anything about it. So he's just like, okay, yeah, you're a dude. They go back in the party. He's asked, and he's like, yeah, well... A little bit later, Neeson has him in the bathroom. And he's like, what's going on? And they're like, well, they're trying to find out if Brandon's a girl or not. And he's like, no, I already settled this. Let's go in. And apparently Neeson has got him and is beating up on Brandon and pulling his pants out and proving once and for all to everyone to see Brandon's assigned female. That's what John claimed. But I don't know if I really believe.
0: Yeah, I don't think I would believe him either.
1: So at this party... Brandon is with Lana, they're in the living room, and apparently there was a lot of uh, drunken threats from Lauder and Neeson. The more they drank, the more they were just being aggressive. Now, this is the reported story, not John's version of it. Mm -hmm. Brandon had a reputation of always being able to talk his way out of these situations, but Tom and John were not, you know, going to let this happen. So then they took Brandon into the bathroom, removed his pants and underwear, and showed that... He had a vagina. Or he did not have a penis. Even that didn't really satisfy them. So after everyone either was asleep or left, they carried Brandon outside, put him in John's Crown Victoria, and drove to the Hormel meat plant on the edge of town. Okay, coming up is a scene that depicts sexual assault as well as physical assault. Brandon's in the back of John Lauder's car. They drive to the Hormel plant on the edge of town where in the back seat... They penetrate him vaginally as well as anally. And then Neeson proceeded to beat him up. I couldn't get like an actual how long this all went, but apparently it wasn't the fastest. So when they were done, they put him back in the car. They drove to Neeson's home. And now Neeson lived, at this time, on 9th and Chase Street. This location this happened was only a few blocks away. So this wasn't like, it was in an area where there wouldn't have been no witnesses. You screamed, you probably were no one was going to hear. It's not a heavily populated part of town. But still, it was so close. Like the entire event could have happened and driving there, committing the, the deed, and going back could have only been 30 minutes for all we know. Whereas in the movie, you get the idea that they're driving to the middle of nowhere, to this old plant, and you know. So they get back to Neeson's house, they forced him to clean himself up, warned that there would be consequences if he reported it, and then forced him to take a shower. So it was while he was taking a shower, he used the water as a distraction while he opened the window and climbed out. Smart. Yep. So made his way to Linda's house. Leslie called the police. Brandon had a busted lip. Face was red and swollen and had a welt on his back in the shape of the sole of a boot. Now, the Fall City Hospital did a rape kit that indicated vaginal trauma. Mm -hmm. And there were semen specimens found in both anus and vagina. Now, I would like to point out, if I can remember correctly, the house was more than 10 blocks apart. So sneaking off in the cover of darkness, just having the crap beat out of you. Crosstown. Yikes. That is not a pleasant thing. No. Okay, so on Christmas Day, that that was, a, that was on Christmas Eve that this happened, mm-hmm. Christmas Day, Brandon filed a rape complaint against John Lauder and Marvin Thomas Neeson and then was interrogated by Richardson County Sheriff Charles Locks. Now I'm going to pause and I'm going to play something. So what I just played for Sparky was a YouTube clip that had pieces of a recorded, it should have been just an interview. Brandon was there to report what had happened, but it was an interrogation.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: What are your thoughts after listening to that?
0: I think Brandon should have tried to file charges against the police department after that.
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: Because... And I would recommend you finding this video and watching it yourself, so you can be as infuriated as I feel right now. But they're asking locks. Locks was asking questions in a way that was not respectful of a rape victim. The way that he was asking questions, I think, would be kind of re-traumatizing.
1: What he described as sinking it in.
0: Or say, when they were about to poke you, no. Or get a
1: spread of you. Yeah. And the thing that pisses me off the most about this interrogation is, instead of being concerned more about the crime that happened, he asks, why do you run around with girls instead of guys, being you're a girl yourself?
0: Yeah, and I liked Brandon's response. I don't see what that has to do with this. Because it doesn't have anything to do with it.
1: And then he asks, why do you make girls think you're a guy? To which Brandon replies, I have a sexual identity crisis. And he doesn't know what that means. He's more concerned with the fact that Brandon is assigned female but passes as a male than he is that a crime in his jurisdiction has happened. A violent sexual crime. And it's not made up. They did a rape kit. So it's not like he just came... With no evidence, and said, hey, I've been raped. He was at the hospital. It was performed.
0: Yeah, and the other thing of this that they actually, they say in the movie, too, they're talking about when they pulled down Brandon's pants. The sheriff says something like...
1: Did he stick a finger in you? Yeah. Did he fondle you in
0: Well, I can't believe that they didn't do that. It's like, are you kidding me right now? And
1: he asked questions like, did... Did he have a hard on when he got there? Did, did you help him get it up? Or did he have to take time to get it up?
0: Why why? You can He was ra- asking questions like a lawyer.
1: You can rape someone with an inanimate object. Yeah. So whether or not the perpetrators had hard-ons or not is not Believe it or not, he didn't get fired for this.
0: Isn't he still like employed with the city?
1: Not anymore. I, I think he was county commissioner for a while after this.
0: And they didn't arrest the guys either, did they? Not for this.
1: Not for this.
0: Which is just ridiculous. They had evidence.
1: The one thing that, that kind of, as hard as it is to watch this thing, the one thing that sticks out to me is when Locks asks where they stuck it in. Remember what Brandon said?
0: In my vagina.
1: The way Brandon said that, it was almost like it was more shameful that he was assigned female than the rape. That alone should have given Locke's, okay, I need to stop. I need to be there. I need to be comforting. I need to be caring. This person's going through trauma that they themselves don't understand. I don't need to keep poking. I'm making this worse.
0: Yeah. Very traumatizing, I would think.
1: I will say that in the 27 years that this has happened... Charlie Locks isn't much different. I don't know him well. He would come into a restaurant, but he was always kind of his way or else. I don't know if he didn't like it, he didn't understand it. It didn't matter. But yeah, he I feel he should have been fired after this.
0: Mm-hmm. He should have been arrested.
1: He did run for re-election, but he lost re-election. But then he ran for county commissioner and won. Why? I have no idea. Honestly, the best thing that I could say as to why he wasn't fired, the best reason as to why he was allowed to like be a county commissioner afterward and whatnot, was Brandon was an outsider. The majority of people didn't care. Brandon being assaulted didn't matter. Him failing to do his job and protecting these people did not matter because they were outsiders. Had it been a Tisdale or one of the other big families in that community, there would have been hell to pay. So. Later that day... You ready to get really angry? Sure. Later that day, Linda warned Neeson and Lauder that Brandon had ratted them out. Mm -hmm. Now, they warned Brandon that if he told anyone about this, there was going to be consequences. Now, while I don't exactly know what was said, I can assume it's... If you tell anyone, we're going to kill you. Because that just seems pretty standard. But yeah, so she goes... She warns. Three days later, both men are questioned and deny that either of them had been involved. So Brandon didn't really know what to do. He goes back to Lincoln. He's going to probably go to prison for no other reason violating the terms of his probation. In Fall City, he was probably going to get a felony conviction for forgery. And since he had been warned by Nissan and Lauder not to tell anyone... There's a the possibility they're going to kill him. So one thing he did was contact Lisa Lambert, explained what had happened, and asked if he could stay at the farmhouse. Leslie Tisdall had broken up with Philip, and he too was given shelter at Lisa Lambert's house until his mom could send him money so he could go back home. So in the next couple of days, Brandon they would cruise on roads between Humboldt and Fall City. He'd hang out with Lana avoided Neeson and Lauder for obvious reasons. Even told his mom that Neeson and Lauder had threatened to kill him. I don't think he believed it. I think he believed that it was just drunk talk. You know?
0: So you think Brandon thought that they didn't mean it?
1: Yeah, I think at first Brandon was scared, but I think the more he thought about it the more he tried to find a rationale, I guess. It was you know, just drunk talk. It's fine. So this is what I was able to dig up on John and Tom before this. Both of them had kind of interesting family lives, hot-tempered. They both had suicidal tendencies, foster homes, juvie homes, substance abuse, crime. Lauder had a history of theft and attempted burglary. Angela told me that most of his crime record was joyriding. Which
0: you told me was pretty standard for Nebraska.
1: Yeah, uh, honestly, a lot of kids I know. Sometimes their parents knew about it, sometimes they didn't. They'd go cruising, didn't have a license. As a child, Water was described as being hyperactive, a slow learner. A juvenile court declared him as being uncontrollable, and he became a ward of the state. He was so uncontrollable that Boys Town actually turned him down. And now, their slogan was that there was no such thing as a bad boy.
0: <laughs> obviously not.
1: So he would go to a foster home sporadically. He attended five schools in six years. And of the six years prior to this, he spent four of them in custody.
0: So he's obviously doing really well.
1: Yeah, and now it, it described him as being a slow learner. So the first thing I I know, his IQ... At the time of this was about 76 and Tom Neeson was described as having an IQ in the low 80s. And so that's a question that I asked Angela. It was, did he have a learning disability or did he not care or was he actually, you know, a little bit slower? She stated that he just didn't care. Which is another common thing. I mean, if you have a small-town life, you know this is the only life for you. You don't need school. You are not. You know you're not going to go to college. You're not going to do this. You're going to be a day laborer. You're going to work in a factory, you know. That's a common attitude. That was actually an attitude that I had, which led to me quitting school.
0: Yeah, you butthead.
1: Yeah, and now I'm making the steps to change that, which is possible. It but, is. Now, the only person that was said to get through to John was Lana. They had known each other most of their lives, and some reports stated that they had an on-and-off relationship. But Angela told me that, to the best of her knowledge, they did not, and she asked her sister, who was Lana's best friend, and she said not that she knew her. So, one thing I've kind of wondered about this, a theory that I've had, is, did John have a thing for Lana, and did she reject him? And then when he found out that Brandon was assigned female, it was, oh, rejects me, an actual guy, but goes out with a woman. This is a small town. This is a really ignorant community. This is a guy who, you know, not the sharpest tool in the shed. Is that his thinking? Probably. Um, But I don't know for sure. That's just speculation. And when I say ignorant community, I'm not, like, belittling the community. There's a lot of highly intelligent people, but there's also a lot of people whose attitudes are, like I described... You know, they don't really need school. They don't need to apply themselves. They can just chill. It's kind of... It's a very conservative area. Outsiders are... Anything different is not really accepted.
0: I think that's true of any small town, though. It really is. Where we are right now,
1: hopefully. Now, Neeson's mother was pregnant with her first child when she was 14. She then married Ed Neeson after a 10-day courtship when she was 15. Oh, jeez. When his parents split up, Neeson... Uh, Went to Mississippi with his father. When he was young, he began stealing cars. He flirted around with white supremacy. Big surprise there. Before he finally went back to Fall City, where he lived with his mom, who was now married to an ex-con. And she had her own rap sheet, bad checks, DWI, resisting arrest, you know, typical stuff for small towns anyway. He then ran off to a homeless shelter in Washington State, but then went back to Nebraska. Where he? Why end- in
0: Washington? I don't
1: know. Uh, he ended up with Candy Gibson, a 16-year-old unmarried mother with a six-month-old daughter. He enlisted in the army. Um, so
0: obviously they really liked each other a
1: lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then he, at one point, ended up traveling in a carnival before going back. They got married in 1992, and a few days later, he started cheating on his wife. Now, 23 days after getting married, he was arrested for setting two fires in Fall City and was convicted of second-degree arson, Uh, and in September of 92, he received a prison sentence of one to three years. So, both of these people had interesting histories, Mm -hmm. but really, logic was not something they really had.
0: Oh, what I was going to say, and it's not an excuse, but people that grew up in violent homes are more likely to be violent themselves. True. And that's not just me spouting stuff off. That's There's been studies that show that kids that come from abusive households go on to abuse their own kids. And I think in a lot of cases that extends to their friends, too. They don't know how to treat people. Uh, or they're, they don't know how to treat their friends. They don't know how to treat partners especially because they see whoever they live with being yelled at or beaten all the time it's not like they have good role models so that's not an excuse but it's tough
1: so it was around this time the day after christmas that they started making a plan who's they john lauder and tom neeson now neeson stated John and I arrived by talking about it and just going on and on with the conversation. So, in the beginning, it was just angry, drunk talk. You know, I'm going to kill him. You know, look what he did. But then it got a little too carried away. A special prosecutor from the state's attorney general office asked if they had discussed a method of execution, how they were going to pull it off if they found him. Neeson said that their plans were to chop off his hands and his head. Um, Why was that? It was so that the body couldn't be identified. Great. And as for our tools, they took a hatchet, a rope, and change of clothing. When asked why a change of clothing, they stated in case there was blood on their clothes. I like how just
0: in case there was blood. Because chopping off somebody's head, definitely. There's no blood involved in that.
1: Nope. They were initially thinking that Brandon... Had gone back to Lincoln. So they drove to Lincoln the day after Christmas.
0: How long of a drive is it from?
1: It's like an hour and a half to two hours. Okay, so it's not... Oh, no, you could, you could probably drive to Lincoln and back to Fall City two or three times in a day. I mean, why would you, but I'm just <sighs> saying. So they found an address book that Brandon had left. They didn't know that Brandon was still in Richardson County. They went to... Lincoln, and according to Joanne, they actually kind of staked out her place.
0: Joanne is Lise?
1: Is Brandon's mom. Okay. So, it seems like in their mind, Lana had been taken advantage of, and they were going to avenge her honor. Okay. Yeah.
0: Lana, according to what you know...
1: Didn't ask them to do this, right? As far as I know, no. No. There there have been theories that Atlanta's mom might have, but again, we don't know. It's all speculation.
0: Okay.
1: So, December 31st, 1993, they set out in Lauder's Crown Vic to find Brandon. They made three stops before they left Fall City. They went to his mom's house. And there he took a knife that belonged to his father and two pairs of work gloves.
0: Whose mom's house?
1: This would be John's mom.
0: Okay. Sorry, I'm just...
1: You're good. Then they went to a friend named Eddie Bennett. Neeson stayed in the car. Water goes inside. I've heard that he said, oh, can I use your bathroom? Or just, hey, how you doing? Well, either way, he snuck into his room and he stole his thirty eight caliber semi-automatic handgun. And then the last stop was to go to Linda's house where Linda told them that Brandon, along with Philip, was staying with Lisa Lambert. They knew that these guys were angry, they probably smelled like booze, and they were looking for Brandon. Now, at any time, Lana or Leslie could have called Lisa and warned of what was coming. They did not. (sighs) A special prosecutor asked Neeson at his trial, As you drove to Humboldt, was there any discussion along the way of what was going to happen when you got there? Now, this would have been about a 25, 30-minute drive. So they had time to talk. You know, if nothing else, a quick plan of what was going to happen. Neeson replied, Me and John Lauder talked about killing Brandon. Well, the exact quote is, Me and John Lauder talked about killing Tina Brandon. And I told John Lauder that if he shot Tina, there was other people around. And the other people would have to be killed also.
0: So it was premeditated.
1: Premeditated. They spent, this was the 31st, they spent since Christmas when they found out planning. Great. So, here we go. And I'll tell the story the way I think it happened. So, the door was kicked in. Tom and John are going in the house. There's three people there. They're looking for Brandon. They want to kill Brandon. Philip is a very large athletic person who, when he was found, he had his prosthetic on. And he was just as good with that prosthetic as if it had been his actual leg. So that wasn't going to slow him down. I think what happened was they had him at gunpoint. They found Brandon. They fired a shot under Brandon's chin. Brandon was found in the bedroom. Okay. Fell backwards onto a waterbed. Then the body was twitching. They stabbed it. They fired a shot that hit... Lisa Lambert in the abdomen a second shot hit Lisa Lambert in the eye some speculation is that she was holding the baby when the first shot but the baby was taken away the baby was found in the crib when the bodies were found philip devine was found slumped on the couch in the living room he had been shot twice all three Wait. in the i believe the neck and the head Oof. all three victims were shot at close range and had powder residue on their skin. Oof. The real question is who did it? Now, the movie portrayed John and Tom both in equal parts because they left out Philip Devine, just two murder victims. So in the movie, John shoots Brandon in the head and then drops the gun, realizing what he did. Tom picks it up and kills Candace, or the Lisa Lambert character. Now... Tom Neeson wanted to avoid the death penalty, so he took a deal. He was going to turn witness against John. And basically at the trial said John did everything except stab. I stabbed. So for that, he got life in jail. He's serving three consecutive life sentences, whereas John is on death row. However, in 2007, he came forward and stated that he's the one that did the killing.
0: That Tom is? That
1: Tom is the one that shot. And now multiple of Tom's former cellmates have come forward saying that he had admitted to them that he's the one that did it. Now, John was the bigger of the two. I could almost see him being more intimidating to Philip than Tom. Yeah. Unless they had a weapon. But if they were in the bedroom, shots were being fired, I think Philip would have either tried to escape or tried to intervene. Mm-hmm. I think Philip Devine was, in fact, killed by... Tom Neeson. Philip DeVine was black, and Tom Neeson has dabbled with white supremacy. So I think that's kind of a no-brainer. Who killed the other ones? Who fired those shots? They killed Lisa Lambert and Brandon Tina? That's the real question. Who did it? Because that's what I ask Angela. Who really did it? They've, they've all told different stories. But the the main point is, three people were killed. And all three could have been avoided had Sheriff Locks, listened to his deputies, and arrested John Lauder and Tom Neeson. So I feel he's responsible for this. Yeah,
0: he probably, he really should have done some jail time for that.
1: So, the two of them, John and Tom, leave the house. They were there no more than five minutes. We'll never really know what happened.
0: Wasn't there a knife, too?
1: There was a knife, yeah. They stabbed Brandon in the abdomen. As they're leaving, they have a package that has the gun, the knife, and the gloves that they were wearing that they took from John's mom's house. Did
0: they bring the hatchet in?
1: Hatchet, I believe, was still in the car. Drunk talk. (laughs) They went back to Tom's house where, with Tom's uh, wife Candy as well as John's girlfriend, Rhonda, they came up with alibis. Basically, they had been there since 1am and they went to bed. So at 10 o'clock this morning, they got there around 3, so about 7 hours later, Lisa Lambert's mom is on her way to the house because she's got some things that she told Lisa she was going to drop by. Mm -hmm. She notices that the door is a little ajar, but a lot of people go in and out. Someone could have been drunk and just broke the door and it doesn't shut right.
0: I like that that's a a reasonable...
1: (laughs) But she hears Tanner crying. She knocks on the door... No answer, door's not really shut, so she just goes on in. She sees Philip slumped out over the couch, and I couldn't find any report if she noticed blood or anything, but she did notice that the coffee table was kind of laying against him. Which, if we're going into an assault, he was a large person. One of them could have knocked him off balance by taking the coffee table and pushing it into him. Like, lifting it up and, you know... She then went into the bedroom where she heard the crying, and that's where she found the body of her daughter and Brandon, dead, bloodied, as well as her grandson crying. She grabs her grandson. She then goes back into the kitchen, grabs the phone, and dials the police. She then is very careful about what she touches because, I guess, she had been like an EMT or something. She was trained on how to behave in a crime scene. She touched Little as possible and if she did it described as only using one finger and her thumb to grip things yeah she opened the refrigerator made a bottle for the baby when the police arrived she was sitting at the table feeding Tanner that was her priority in this yeah uh, it didn't take them long to uh, arrest John and Tom in which case they kind of if I remember correctly it was Tom that ad- you know, opened up about being involved with it. Um, As they had been leaving, that package that they had, they threw it over a bridge into the Nemaha River. Their plan, they threw it into the river with the intention that it would be washed into the Missouri and then lost. Except it was December 31st in (laughs) Nebraska. And the winters in Nebraska are freakishly cold. The river was frozen. So they were able to retrieve... The package, which had the gun, gloves, and a knife. now, what made it significant was that on the sheath it had one name written on it: Lauder. It had been John Lauder's father's knife, and that's really how they were able to really pin it on them, even though they you know were quite about it, but so they had that evidence they had the crime scene, they charged them. Neeson agreed to testify against John Neeson's. Trial happened first, um, then they were sentenced later. They had to actually find jury from Omaha because it was a small town and they wanted to make sure that it was a fair trial. That's, yeah, that's probably good. I got mixed reports of this. Some people said no one cared. Like the locals, they they didn't really know anyone too well. They were the, the lower class of the area. So, And I heard other people claiming that, it was kind of a, a bit of a spectacle, which I think it was probably somewhere in the middle.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I do know that there was a lot of activists. Angie told me that there was a lot of trans people that came in support. They were wearing shirts that said um, transsexual men nice. held signs. The families were obviously there for the trial. Neeson seemed to just kind of like play with his hair during this trial. Sat there. Apparently he would play with it and it came To like a a rat's tail. I think he was calmer. Or just kind of, you know, maybe bored a little bit because he knew he made the deal he wasn't going to get the death penalty. John was also calm and didn't react much. Except when his father came to the trial. And he showed him that he had uh, shackles. Tom was sentenced to three consecutive life. And he is in Lincoln at the prison. John was sentenced to death. And he is at the Tecumseh prison. Still on death row, he has made an appeal pretty much every two years since. They've tried claiming that his IQ was under 70 when around the time the IQ testament was in the mid-70s. And
0: under 70, that's like the cutoff?
1: Mm-hmm. If they're under 70, they can be considered mentally disabled and can't be death for that. Yeah, one thing that a reporter noted was that the the parents of people involved were friendly with each other. They were talking about their kids, their grandkids. They they didn't really have too much animosity. And if I remember correctly, I think it was Lisa Lambert's mom and John Lauder's mom actually worked together. Oof. But they said it, it wouldn't affect their friendship because you know they weren't involved.
0: Eh, that's big of them. I don't think I would feel the same way.
1: Yeah. Charles Locks was a really inept sheriff who didn't do his job and it cost life of three people. There was a wrongful death suit charged against him and the Richardson County Sheriff's Department. A lower court awarded I think seventeen thousand dollars wrongful death when they were going for much more. But I believe a higher court, maybe the Nebraska Supreme Court, awarded I think seventy some thousand. Which still, no number can really bring back
0: Yeah, that's not kid. really... And not only did uh, three people die, there was a baby that is growing up without a mother.
1: There's just a lot of horrible after-effects of this. I mean, I was born the same year, so growing up, I was two at Nissan's trial, I was four at their sentencing. It was still fresh in their mind as I was going into elementary school. It it was quite a thing. Everyone had an opinion about it. And even later, I I knew a lady. I'm going to be truthfully honest. I don't know how this person identified. I know I had heard them refer to themselves as a she. But I know at one point they identified as a male. So I'm just going to say them. They were around for a while. And there were comments made about they needed to be careful or the same thing that happened to Brandon was going to happen to them. Oh, my gosh. And I think it's a little bit more accepting now than it used to be. I know there were numerous kids that I went to school with that were part of the LGBTQ community, still are. But that is my hometown crime.
0: So here's my takeaway. This wouldn't have happened. If people weren't super transphobic slash homophobic. This also wouldn't have happened if the sheriff wasn't a giant jerk. Also wouldn't have happened, possibly, if somebody had warned Lisa that those boys were coming to the house. I,
1: I have often wondered why Lana didn't. And now, there is a story, and I don't know... How accurate it was. It was portrayed in the movie. I think at one time Neeson or John specified it. But then recanted it during their trial. But stated that Lana actually went with them. But stayed in the car. They later recanted. So I. And
0: Lana's never said one way or the other.
1: She's been adamant that she wasn't there. Yeah. Uh. I do know that by the time of the trial. Lana had a. Another boyfriend. And I think he had some kids. I don't know if that's who she married, but I do know that she was married in 2001. And I think she is back in the area, but I don't think she lives in Fall City.
0: Did you ever meet her?
1: No. I knew relatives of hers. I used to work with her niece. Interesting. Mm-hmm.
0: Is there anything else on the topic you want to mention?
1: Just, um, if you don't agree with someone what they're doing, if you don't agree with their lifestyle, whether it's a religious reason or an ignorant reason or whatever, it's not affecting you, leave it alone.
0: I know a lot of people nowadays argue like with, you know, how in recent years more sexual identities and things like that, gender identities have become more commonplace. People will be like, well, I just don't understand. There's men, there's women, blah, blah, blah. You know, (laughs) but it really, you don't have to understand to be kind. You don't have to understand everything of somebody's life in order to treat them with respect.
1: No, they're still humans, and remember that. Yeah. Treat them as such. You don't know everything about a person just by looking at them, just what their life seems. So don't judge. If it's not, like, directly affecting you in your day-to-day life, let it go. Let people. Be themselves.
0: Yeah. And just don't be a sucky person.
1: Yeah.
0: And don't murder anybody. And if you do murder somebody, make sure that the knife doesn't have your family name on it.
1: Yeah. (laughs) That, and I'm still baffled by the throwing it in the Nimaha River in December.
0: (laughs) This is gonna work. It's gonna go really Uh, good. I
1: mean, really, that, the idea wasn't a horribly bad idea. Yeah. I mean, throwing it in the river, having it wash out to a bigger river. That was really smart had it not been December yeah. <laughs> when the rivers are frozen over every year.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to edit this down quite a bit, but right now we're at 2 hours, 21 minutes. Woo! So, um
1: One thing I would like to point out, I've been kind of quiet about this case throughout my life. Mm. On the internet a lot, I've seen people talking about this case in, like, YouTube videos or posts or whatever. And honestly, I never wanted to admit I was from there, like, in this context.
0: Yeah, I don't blame you.
1: Because it it's just, this is what the town is known for. It was founded during the American Civil War. It was a stop on the Underground Railroad. It was founded by a man who was uh, an abolitionist who was high on the list of people they wanted to kill during the Kansas, uh, Lawrence, Kansas Massacre. It's gone from being a a spot like that, you know, with with rich history that's, you know, to we're known for bizarre deaths.
0: You're known for a terrible murder that didn't need to happen. I mean, most murders don't need that, but anyway.
1: That's not the only one.
0: There's other ones, too? Yeah. Cool.
1: So, yeah, that is my hometown crime. Yay. Yeah, I yeah, finally done it. Now uh, I would like to tell you that since this was my hometown and I know all about this, it has really bothered me, and I'm not going to do true crime for a while.
0: You have done this is what your like third true crime story you've done on this podcast.
1: Yes, man, this is the one that hurts.
0: Yeah, leave the true crime to me. Thank you for listening.
1: Yes, thank you for listening to this longer than usual episode. This we. Haunting episode.
0: Like you said, we now have a web page. It's still kind of being worked on, but that's where our sources will be posted. If you want to be infuriated by this, I would watch the uh, Sheriff interview.
1: Yeah, we'll post a link to that. Probably post that on Facebook, too.
0: Please remember to rate and review us. We're trying to get to 10. We'll do an extra episode. Hi, Bowser. Um, if you would share us with your friends, we would really appreciate it. Do we have a goal for 2021? My goal for us, hold on, I think we're at 3.3 thousand. 3, My goal for 2021 is to have 100 listeners, estimated audience, and 10,000 down there. Yeah, I was just
1: going to say 10,000 total plays. Yeah. I mean, I mean, we did that starting in the beginning with only a handful of people that knew we were doing this podcast. There were th- three other an episode.
0: If you want to email us, creepylifepodcast at gmail.com. Everything else you can find on our website. And,
1: yeah. Yeah, thanks for listening.
0: Stay creepy.